Well, happy 4th of July, and however you are celebrating, maybe you've yet to celebrate, or maybe you've already celebrated and are just catching up with us, I'm glad that you're here. We're starting a new sermon series, and it's called Watchdogs. Now, what is a watchdog? A watchdog is someone who just holds someone accountable. They, they have a perspective where they can speak some objective truth into a situation. In fact, uh, in today's context, something that you might know of is watchdog journalism. And this was made famous decades ago in the 70s by these two guys, Bob Woodward and Kyle, uh, Carl Bernstein. Uh, these two guys, uh, through their watchdog journalism, uh, exposed Nixon in what we now know as and refer to as Watergate. So a watchdog is someone who just speaks truth into a situation. And so we call our series Watchdogs, uh, the Minor Prophets, because the prophets are God's watchdogs. In fact, they're even called this in Hosea 9, 8. It says the prophet is a watchman. And, and that same word that we translate to watchman, we can also understand it to be is a watch. Dog. Oh, now, what are the prophets? I was talking with a friend and uh, he was telling me, you know, Mark, when I was first became a Christian, someone gave me a Bible and they said, start reading through it. And so I started reading through it and you had this amazing narrative. And then you had this great poetry and Psalms and Proverbs. And then all of a sudden you get to these things called the major and the minor prophets. And it's just confusing. And it is. He says, it's just weird. And he's like, it's weird. Like, I understand. We understand. Like, it is weird. But we understand the prophets uh, were God's messengers, God's watchdogs to speak truth. And they did so allegorically, often through, through poetry and through imagery lived out. Uh, God often asked them to do something that, uh, that, that made them look maybe a little bit ridiculous to the people around them. In fact, if we go back to that verse, Hosea 9, 8, and just a little bit before that in verse 7, we read this. We read this where it says, the prophet is considered a fool. The inspired person, a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on his paths and hostility in the house of his God. And so to be a prophet, you knew that you were going to be considered a fool, a crazy person, and that sometimes your life would be in great jeopardy. And when we get to the prophets, some of us know these terms when we talk about divisions of books in the Bible, major prophets, minor prophets. We understand the words major and minor to, to infer importance, right? Like, man, it's better to be in the major leagues, right? That's a different kind of excellence, if you will, than the minor leagues. But that's not what it means here when we talk about major prophets and minor prophets. Major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? These guys, we just have more. So they're just bigger books. We have more content from them than we do from these other prophets, but they are equally as important to us because as we walk through this series, we will understand and we will grow to see how God's watchdogs to his nation of Israel around like the time period of like 700 BC to 400 BC, over these couple centuries, God's watchdogs to his people are also watchdogs in our lives as well. So we're going to start with the very first minor prophet in our Bible, which is the prophet of Hosea. And the prophet of Hosea kicks things off in great fashion. Uh, when God speaks to Hosea, uh, God says, Hosea, I got a job for you. Hosea is like, okay, great. What's, what's the job? God says, I want you to get married. Hosea says, great. 
I love getting married. That's great. I was afraid I'd have to like be naked like another prophet or get swallowed by a fish like another guy I knew, you know, or eat locusts or something kind of crazy like that. You want me to get married? And God says, yes, I want you to get married to her. Her name is Gomer. She's a promiscuous woman. She's going to take your love and your affection and she's going to throw it right back at you in your face. She's going to stop on the ground, make you feel terrible. She's going to become an adulterous woman. She's going to have so many affairs. Hosea, she's actually just going to end up running away from you. I want you to marry Gomer. Oh, oh, and by the way, I want you to have children with Gomer. And just so you know, some of these children, they won't look like you. And so Gomer does have children. The first one with Hosea, God says, name him Jezreel because I'm going to judge this land. And then we read that, we read that Gomer has a daughter. Whether it's Hosea's daughter, Gomer, uh, Gomer has a daughter. And so Hosea's like, oh, a baby girl. Can you imagine having just a baby girl? And, and, and God says, yes, name her, not my loved one. Name my baby girl, not my loved one. Can you imagine that? And then she has another boy and, and, and he says, yes, name him Loami, which means not my people, not mine. Jezreel, Laruhamah, and Larami. Why would God do this to Hosea? And we know that people think they're a fool and people think they're me. Why in the world would God do this to somebody, especially his messenger? And God wastes no time in telling Hosea why he wants him to do this. We read that in chapter one, verse two. Read it along with me. You can open it up in the Bible you may have or you can follow along with me on the screen. It says this, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for what? For a like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. God told Hosea to do this. He says, I want you to feel what I feel. I want you to know what I know because as your wife will be an adulterous wife, the most adulterous wife any adulterous wife could be, so my people have been to me. How can we understand Israel as an adulterous wife. Well, the book of Hosea is 14 chapters. And it's broken down very simply in this way. Chapters one through three, we have this allegory, this true story of Hosea and Gomer. But this allegory of how Hosea's marriage to Gomer is like God's marriage, his relationship to the Israelites. And chapters one through three kind of bounce back and forth between Hosea and Gomer, and then it depicts God and the Israelites, and then Hosea and Gomer. And, and we have this beautiful imagery, chapters one through three, chapters four through 14, give us a greater understanding of how Israel was being adulterous. Four through 14 is just a collection of Hosea's prophecies over the several decades of his ministry to Israel. And it wastes no time diving in. Just right away in chapter four, we read that there is no faithfulness in the land. And then five through six, and even part of seven, uh, he literally just names city after city, taking a road trip through Israel, just saying, exposing their wickedness. 
exposing their idolatry, their hypocrisy, their Baal worship, their, their wanting to look to other nations for their trust and for their security, for how they are killing each other on the streets. And, and just to give you a glimpse of how gloomy this is, there's a city called Gilead, and it's supposed to be a city of refuge. It's the whole purpose of it. It's supposed to be a city of refuge. It's also a, a Levitical city, a city in which uh, some of the Levites would live. They were allowed to live there. Uh, the Levites were the, the priestly nation, the nation in which the priests came from, the Levites. And so this was supposed to be a safe spiritual city. And what do we read? In chapter six, he says this, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He goes down to verse eight. Here we go. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood, as marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests, <laughs> those who you would expect to be bad. The corruption goes all the way to those who you would never expect to be corrupt. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. And just through the rest of this book, it just utters the punishment and the judgment and the wrath of God. And in true allegorical form, we see God's frustration and his anger towards his people in the imagery of a husband towards his wife, in the imagery of Hosea to Gomer. Jump with me back to chapter two. And let's just sit in God's anger here. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my olive oil, and my drink. And I was, I'll go after my lovers. They give me everything I desire. And this is what he says. He almost sounds like the parent of like a rebellious middle schooler. Listen to this. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. I will chase after her lovers, but she will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then, then she will say, right, I will go back to my husband as at first for then I was better off than now she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and the oil who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal it was me who provided for her not her lovers and in the next few verses he says I will take away and I will take back and I will expose and I will stop and I will ruin and I will make them a thicket a wild animals will devour them and I will punish and then we have these four words that end verse 13 you just feel the pain but me she forgot Israel has forgotten God And then it shifts beautifully. It shifts. After all of that, God says this, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness 
and speak tenderly to her. Jump to verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And remember Jezreel and the Ruhmah and the Wame, he restores that. He says, and in the day I will respond, declares the Lord, I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel, this restoration. I will plant her for myself in the land and I will show my love to the one that I called, not my loved one. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. And chapter two ends with just this beautiful restoration. So we get to chapter three and what happens? God tells Hosea, he says, go love your wife again. Go find her. And by this time, she was way far gone. And we can only like assume what might have happened to her at this point. Uh, but he literally had to buy her back. He had to purchase his wife back. He had to go find her and then buy his own wife back. Some scholars say she was just full on in this life of prostitution at this point, And there was some kind of a pimp, if you will, that they had to pay for her. Or others would say maybe it was more like a sex slavery and she was maybe being auctioned off, as would be common in that day, to the highest bidder. And can you imagine being there, you're Gomer, and if you're auctioned off as a slave, you're stripped naked, you're just bare, you're being auctioned off, and you're hearing the value of your life, five shekels, 10 shekels, and then you hear 15, and you go, wait, I know that voice. I know that voice. And you look up and you see your husband. And you gotta think to yourself, why? Why is he here? After all that I've done, why is he here? There's a famous phrase, and it goes like this Et tu brute. And you'll have to forgive. <laughs> my Italian, but this is from a Shakespearean play called The Tragedy of Julius Caesar. To refresh our history, Julius Caesar in 44 AD was assassinated. A group of senators along with other close friends and people uh, plotted against him and killed him. Uh, the famous playwright Julius, uh, <laughs> not Julius Caesar, he was the one who was assassinated. The famous playwright William Shakespeare put this into put this into a play, The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, and he paints Brutus as Julius's best friend. Now, historians might argue that that wasn't actually the case, but it proves to the point where uh, there's this part in the scene where Caesar knows that he's going to be murdered, that this plot has been carried out against him, and he turns around and he sees his closest friend holding the knife. And he utters that phrase, et tu, Brute, meaning, and you, Brutus, you also, you would even do this to me. 
And so this is just a, a painting uh, in the 18th century uh, depicting the tragedy of Julius Caesar. And you can see Julius Caesar with everyone wanting to kill him, this, 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 this mass of people that plotted against him, this coup. He turns around and he points his dearest friend Brutus, realizing, I've been betrayed by, by you. I, uh, I don't think I am wrong in assuming that everyone watching right now, in some degree, knows what betrayal feels like. Th- that in some matter or degree, and some of you far worse than others, far worse than we can even imagine, you know what betrayal feels like. Maybe it was your spouse. Uh, maybe it was a family member or a close friend. Uh, maybe it was at work. You know what betrayal feels like and you know that feeling that Shakespeare captured so well in that phrase. And you, Brutus, et tu, Brute. And we hear this story of Hosea and Gomer and we want to empathize with Hosea. And you said, oh, I know what that feels like to be betrayed by someone that I love. Oh, Hosea, man, good for you. Holy cow, this is amazing. But if we're to understand the book of Hosea correctly, Hosea is imitating God here. And Gomer's imitating Israel and if we know what it feels like to be portrayed, and we've just read these verses in Hosea, what we're supposed to do with that is like Hosea, realize this is what God feels like. And I'm sure to an even greater degree, that was the whole purpose he asked Hosea to do this. Because in this story, we we are Gomer. Now you may say, oh, Mark, I'm not Gomer. I, I've never killed anybody and I haven't committed adultery. I mean, I may, I may be kind of a you know, bad person in this way, but I'm, I'm not Gomer. Let's talk about that. And when I say that, I mean that. Let's talk about that. What is that? That is anything in your life that gives you significance. That is anything in your life that gives you value, that gives you meaning, that gives you purpose. That is anything in your life which you hold in greatest regard. That's what that is. That is what Israel had. That is an idol. For Israel, it was putting their their trust and their security in other nations to protect them and to provide for them, Assyria and Egypt. It was putting the success of their crops and of their life into the hands of other gods that they made. That, for them, was taking matters into their own hand in great arrogance. Twice in the scriptures, actually in Hosea, it says their arrogance testifies against them, their idol of, of pride in their life. And I'm sure, you know, none of us have a problem with putting our trust and security in something else. I'm sure none of us have ever had something that is man-made and handheld that we, we put all of our hope and our success and our future in. I'm sure none of us have anything like that. 
I'm sure, you know, none of us have a problem with pride. Look, here's the deal. We all struggle with that. What is that in your life? It could be your job. It could be your bank account. It could be your hopes and your dreams that you have planned for the future. It could be your spouse. It could be your family. It could be your children. It could be your grandchildren. Anything in which you find your significance, your identity in, your success in, your value in anything, that, that is an idol. That is what Israel had. Friends, we are Gomer. There's no, there's no getting around it. We are Gomer. And maybe some of the best work that you can do today or this week is just to sit down and prayerfully consider what is that? What is that in my life? What is that? Now, <clears throat> one of the things that we also have to understand is that God uses this imagery of marriage very, very specifically. God uses this imagery uh, of, of, of marriage to a great degree in Hosea. He says in 1920, right? He says, I will betroth you. Why does he use this language? Why does he use Hosea's marriage with Gomer? Why does he use this imagery? Uh, when I was in middle school, I uh, went to a ball game with my dad. And, uh, and it wasn't just any ball game. It was here at Wrigley Field. And uh, some of you, you've been to this iconic stadium. Most of you probably could care less about baseball. But this was a big deal. You know, this is my first major league game. And, uh, you know, here's just a picture of it. And I found one that said Cubs win because they probably don't get to put that on the sign uh, very much. But uh, we were there at the Cubs game. We just lived in southwest Michigan. So it was a short drive over to Chicago. And it was just fun. It was an experience with my father. And we're watching the game. And in true form, it was like the most boring game. There wasn't any runs on the board and there wasn't even any like possible runs. Like there were no plays that even looked remotely like this could be an interesting game. And so at the bottom of the sixth inning, my dad just looked at me, he said, you know, we've had a, a great time. If we leave now, we could maybe get a bite to eat and, and, then, and then beat the traffic on the way home. And I was like, yes, that sounds fine. This game is like pointless. But being here was the whole point. It was a great experience. Let's end on a high note and let's go home. So we did just that. And then we're on the way home. We're on the interstate and we tune in. We sit, my dad's like, let's just tune in and see where the game is. So yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. This really boring game. We turn it on, we dial it in. And what does the announcer say? He says, holy cow, this has been the most exciting two innings to any game this season. The score was, went from zero to zero to nine to seven, and the bases were loaded where they could tie it up at the bottom of the ninth inning. My dad and I are looking at each other like, what? 
We missed it. How did we miss this? We left too early. If we had just stayed, we could see this. But instead, we had left the very game that we were listening to, and we were listening to this exciting game on the way home on the radio when we could have been watching it in person. And when we read the Minor Prophets, oftentimes we can get caught in trying to understand what is happening here where we miss the most exciting endings of the game, where we miss the most exciting part of what is happening here. And what we have to see when we see Hosea's love to Gomer and God's love to Israel, what we have to see is that Christ is the fulfillment of Hosea's love. Christ is the fulfillment of Hosea pursuing his bride. Christ is the reason why we even have the ability to be called children of God and why we are objects of his mercy and not his wrath. The Apostle Paul helps explain this to us in Romans chapter 9. Turn with me, if you will, or just read along on the screen. Romans 9, starting in verse 22, says this, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. And we know just by reading Hosea, we are the objects of his wrath. Prepared for destruction, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us. Oh my goodness, talk about two wonderful words in the scripture. Just sit on those two words for a moment. Even us, even us. And if you want to think about it in this way, even me, even me, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Christ is the reason that we can be called children of the living God. Just like chapter two had this wonderful transition from God's wrath to God's mercy, so does Hosea 11. And I just want to encourage you on your own time today or later this week, read Hosea 11. But here we are in verse 8. He says this. He says, my heart is changed within me. This is God speaking. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. And Hosea entered into the marketplace and found his wife and bought her back. Is that not the most beautiful image of what God did for us when Jesus entered the marketplace and bought us back, but he did not buy us back with something he created like shekels or grain. He bought us back with his life. He pursued us. He purchased us. 
Sometimes I think we have this image of the gospel, just this good news. Like, like this, you know, the old school where like there's someone tied up on the train track and the train's coming and, and Jesus just comes swooping in on this horse and saves us from death and, you know, and sw- uh, swiftly rides us off to victory while the train rolls by. Friends, that is not the gospel. God is judge, jury, an executor, and as Paul said, we were the objects of his wrath, and he saved us from his wrath with his son. Jesus isn't just the fulfillment of Hosea's love. Jesus was the object of God's wrath so that he could pay the price to have us. And we have these beautiful words in Hosea 13. Uh, Hosea 13 verse 14 says this, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, is your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? And you say, that sounds really familiar. It should, because we most notably hear this from the Apostle Paul when he's quoting Hosea in 1 Corinthians 15 55 says where O death is your sting where O grave is your victory Christ is the great bridegroom we are the bride of Christ he's purchased us back chapter 3 in these first few verses when Hosea enters the marketplace it is the most beautiful image of how God has saved us his relentless love for us and this imagery of marriage should drive us even more so to our gratitude in his love in this way. What are we supposed to do with this? Two things. One, there's the whole issue of that. That. Wherever that is in your life, chances are God's not. And this isn't something that we can just do once. We we are sinful creatures. We just naturally gravitate towards making idols of the things that God has blessed us with. And we just continually need to, to, to be laying them down. What is that in your life? What is that? Because like in chapter two, when we see, she says, you know, my lovers give me everything that I need, so I will go back to them. No, no, no. It is God who gives us everything that we need. In God, we can find our significance and our identity and our security and our meaning and our purpose. In God, we can find all these things. And and whatever is that in your life that you think you can find them in, learn from Gomer, learn from Israel, that that will never satisfy you. Only God can fill that hole in your life. And God chose to love us. And so the first thing that we need to do is choose God's love over that. Choose God's love over that. And when we get there, we can move on to the second thing that we need to do. Again, this imagery of marriage. Why? Because when we get married, our life changes. Like dramatically, right? Your spouse becomes or should become the most important person in your life. More than your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your Uncle Harry. Uh, Sorry if you have an Uncle Harry. Uh, You know, your best friend, whoever it is. uh, uh, Next to God himself, they must become the most important human being in your life. Why? God designed it this way because marriage is intimate. And that is why it's so hard. You can't hide anything from someone that you're living with, that you're committed to. 
You can't hide. Like they know you better than you know yourself. No, I'm fine. No, you're not fine. Just tell me that you're, you guys, you guys know this is why many of our marriages are broken because we, we, we don't handle this the right way. And what, what else happens in our marriage? Their opinion matters more than anyone else's, even if you don't think that it does. You could be told that, that you're doing a great job and if your spouse looks at you and says, man, you, you suck at this. That's hard. But it's true on the other end as well. People could tell you, man, you're not that good. But if your spouse is your cheerleader, man, you feel like you can conquer the world. God designed it this way because he wants to be that for us. And he doesn't want us to find our significance, our identity, and all that meaning and purpose in something else. He wants us to find it in him. God chose to love us. And so part of understanding what it means to becoming a more devoted followers of Christ is that we need to choose to love others. So just the second thing that we need to do is who do you need to start loving? For some of you, maybe it is your spouse. Whether you sit up out of bed, roll out of bed, jump out of bed, like whatever you do to get up in the morning, it's just every day waking up and recommitting yourself saying, I will love him. I will love her even when they don't deserve it. Let's be honest. There's a lot of times they don't deserve it. None of us deserve it from each other, but we can do it because God loves us and because we've chosen God's love. He's already filling the void in our life that we try and fill whatever that is. And that allows us to love others freely. Maybe it's not your spouse. Maybe it's a coworker or a friend or someone that's wronged you, someone that you've canceled. Who do you need to love? I want to just close our time out by reading this uh, quote from this author and this theologian, Derek Kidner. Just reflecting on these first few, years, uh, first few verses in chapter 3 in Hosea, he, he says this, and it speaks to what we're talking about. You can follow along with me here. It says, It would have been impressive enough had Hosea found that in spite of everything, he still loved his truant wife and had, that, and had then perceived that God's love must be like that too. But in fact, it was the other way around. It was God's love that rekindled Hosea's. And when the Lord said, go again, love her, and gave him the pattern to reproduce. You see, we need to catch up with the fact that, you know, chapter two comes before chapter three. That God allured her, right? Brought her into the wilderness and spoke tenderly to her, betrothed her, speaking to his people, speaking to what Christ would do for us. And then he told Hosea to go and love her. God set the pattern to reproduce. But there's a reality when it comes to loving others who have wronged us. And he addresses it well. He says this, there was no glossing over the unpleasant truth. The again in God's command faced the fact that old wounds would have to be reopened. And that what happened once, well, that might happen yet again. Also, the adultery, God reminded him, was still in progress. Hosea went and pursued her while she was still in process of adultery. She didn't have any change of heart. He pursued her, just like God pursues us. It had been no isolated lapse, but a desertion which added to a continuing insult to injury. The love that asked of him would be heroic. And that's the point. For it was to be God's love 
in miniature. Friends, what allows us to love others as God loves is when we understand that it's God's love in us that allows us to love others. So we need to choose love. We need to choose God's love over that. Whatever that is, we need to choose God's love over that. And then once we have God's love, we need to love others. I want to not close with a prayer today, but I want to close by just reading as a benediction the very last verse in Hosea. The very last verse. And uh, it just speaks well in setting up the rest of the series that we have to go as we look into the other minor prophets and also just helping us know what to do next today. Holy Scriptures say, who is wise, let them realize these things. Who is discerning, let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. May we be wise and discerning in the days to come. May we choose to walk in the ways of the Lord. May we choose God's love over that. And when we have God's love in us, may we love others as he has loved us. In this, may we become more devoted followers of Christ. Amen. Amen.